0: From PRX, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood.
1: And I'm Jenny Doring. America finally has national climate legislation.
2: It is a watershed moment that we should all look back on and and really be proud, particularly at this time when everything seems so fractured and, and difficult and headed potentially in the wrong direction. This is an extraordinary step forward.
0: Also, the remarkable life and love of a wolf who led one of the most powerful packs in Yellowstone.
3: He was, um, I I think many people would agree that he was probably the greatest wolf that has ever been known by human beings. So just to be able to see him every day for year after year was just a huge privilege on
0: my part. That and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. From PRX and the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood.
1: And I'm Jenny Doring. Well, Steve, more than 30 years after you first learned about global warming and started this show, Congress has finally passed serious legislation to reduce emissions.
0: Yeah, it's been a long wait to celebrate if you care about the climate. When Bill Clinton and Al Gore came into office in 1993, they couldn't get a BTU tax through Congress. And then in 1997, the Senate made it clear it wouldn't ratify the Kyoto Protocol.
1: Yeah, and in 2009, the Senate filibuster killed the Waxman-Markey cap-and-trade bill that had passed the House. And then President Obama's efforts with the Clean Power Plan rules first got repealed by President Trump and then recently scuppered when the Supreme Court set almost impossible hurdles for such regulations.
0: But now we have the Inflation Reduction Act, a clever marketing title, I must say, and it's a budget reconciliation measure that restructures some taxes, reduces some health costs, and puts close to $400 billion towards climate action over the next decade. It's a big deal, and it's forecast to reduce U.S. emissions by 40 percent over 2005 levels by the end of the decade, close to the target of 50 percent President Biden announced on his first Earth Day in office. So while there is more work to be done, now that work will seriously begin.
1: Yeah. And Steve, how much will this new law actually reduce inflation?
0: Interesting, you should ask. Former Treasury Secretary Lawrence Summers of Harvard says the act's provisions that reduce deficits by taxing more of the rich and cut health and energy expenses are, in fact, all anti-inflationary. Now, Larry Summers declined to confirm that he had discussed the bill with deficit hawk Joe Manchin, the Democratic senator from West Virginia, saying in published reports their talks over the past year were private. But, Joe Manchin's holdout for deficit reductions apparently worked, and calling the new law the Inflation Reduction Act is not just marketing hype.
1: Oh, interesting. So, Steve, let's take a look now at some of the green details of this measure. There are tax credits for clean manufacturing and renewable energy, including a decade of certainty for tax credits for residential solar. There's a green bank to attract private dollars for clean technologies and stiff penalties for methane leaks from wells and pipelines. We won't list all the details now, but you can find more on the Living on Earth website at LOE.org. And although there's a whole separate section of the Inflation Reduction Act for healthcare, you could say the climate measures themselves are key for health too. So we called up Ari Bernstein, a pediatrician and interim director of the Center for Climate, Health, and the Global Environment at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health to get his take.
2: I've been working on climate and health for over 20 years. This is by far and away the most important piece of legislation to address the health effects of fossil fuel use and climate change by a long shot. It doesn't mean that we can now step back and say, we've got this. There's a lot of work to make sure that this legislation gets used in ways that, that really do promote health equity and result in the kinds of emissions reductions that we need
0: And the climate crisis is certainly bad news for our health. I mean, just recently we've seen so much death and illness from extreme heat, fires, storms and floods. And Dr. Bernstein's group has shown that air pollution from burning fossil fuels leads to some 300,000 excess deaths every year in this country.
2: We know from prior work on transportation and on energy systems that even modest reductions, well below what this bill is, is likely to produce would save you know, billions and billions of dollars in health costs, avoided deaths. And I think it does depend in some ways on how these funds actually wind up getting used. You can save a lot of carbon without actually reducing air pollution very much. So there's some amount of let's wait and see, but you know it, there's certainly a, a good prospect here of, of dramatically improving health and, and particularly addressing health disparities because so much of the pollution gets emitted in communities that have been historically polluted the
1: most. Now, Steve, this bill puts around $60 billion towards remedying some of those environmental injustices.
0: And Jenny, there's a lot of money for greening transportation, which is a big culprit for the air pollution that hits disadvantaged communities. And overall, transportation is the biggest single source of greenhouse gas emissions in the U.S. these days, something like 27%. But if much of the power for electric cars, trucks, and buses keeps coming from coal and gas, it won't help the climate that much. That's why a broader shift to clean energy is so important. So now let's talk about electric cars, because that's easy for folks to relate to.
1: Yeah, sales have been growing, but still, only 6% of new light vehicles sold last year were electric. After all, EVs are pricey, about 10K more than gas-powered vehicles. So now, the act creates a $35 billion pool for clean fuel and vehicle tax credits, and eligible consumers will save $7,500 on any new electric car assembled in America with qualified materials, and as much as $4,000 for a used one.
0: And when do they get that money back? Uh, After filing their taxes?
1: Well, that's how the rebate used to work, but now it can be applied at the point of sale.
0: Oh, so you get to save that money up front.
1: Right. Right. And as Jim Montavalli, Car Talk blogger and green car writer, told us, there are some other restrictions on which vehicles qualify.
4: It puts a cap on the MSRP or the manufacturer's suggested retail price on the cars you're buying. You can't use it for really high-end luxury SUVs. And actually, I've recently driven cars like the Mercedes EQS that are well outside this, you know, the purchase price well over $100,000. But for cars, you'll only be able to get vehicles that are $55,000 and below, and for SUVs and trucks, 80000 around in there and below. So it's not looking to subsidize high-end luxury cars for the rich, which is probably, probably a good thing to have in there.
1: Now, there's already a dearth of the computer chips automakers need, and the lithium industry forecasts that essential mineral for batteries is going to be in short supply until 2030. But the good news is that in the long term, Jim Matavali sees a bigger shift towards a more circular supply chain for electric vehicles.
4: There's a whole lot of startup companies that are going to be producing particularly lithium in the United States, but uh, also working on recycling some of those materials. So uh, they wouldn't have to be sourced as raw mined materials, but could be acquired from existing cars going into junkyards. So that's a big movement now. And I think it's going to be... Very successful. I think it's, it's something like 95 to 98% of EV uh, minerals and, and metals can be actually um, reclaimed from those batteries.
1: Full disclosure I drive an electric car, and aside from not having to worry about inflated gas prices, they're a lot of fun to drive.
0: Yeah. And uh, Jenny, this historic legislation has put some pep in the step of those like Dr. Bernstein who are troubled by so much of our current state of affairs.
2: It is a watershed moment that we should all look back on and and really be proud, particularly at this time when everything seems so fractured and and difficult and headed potentially in the wrong direction. This is an extraordinary step forward.
1: Yeah, Steve, I was honestly starting to lose hope that any kind of climate legislation could pass through Congress. just seemed like there was no way to get around the gridlock in Washington, especially on climate change, given the influence of the fossil fuel industry.
0: But recently, several key measures have passed, from microchip manufacturing support to medical relief for veterans and to lower drug prices as part of the momentous climate bill. You know, some 50 years ago, President Joe Biden first went to Capitol Hill. About 35 years ago, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi first went there. And more than 40 years ago, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer first came to Congress. And that team called on all that experience and demonstrated the art of compromise in the public interest is not dead.
1: Yeah, the whole Democratic Congressional Caucus signed on to the measure, from the most moderate to the most progressive, despite criticism from some activists that this bill doesn't do enough for environmental justice and concedes too much to the fossil fuel industry. That industry has the opposite complaint. The American Petroleum Institute says the measure, quote, falls short in addressing America's energy needs.
0: Well, Jenny, that's the thing about compromise. Nobody gets everything they want. But that's just what it sometimes takes to get things done. Just a few weeks ago, some pundits were sniping at President Biden and his low approval ratings to suggest he should quit after one term. But already, after less than two years, with tight margins in the House and a razor-thin majority in the Senate, President Biden has led the Democrats and the nation to move forward on a broad front, including finally confronting our gravest existential threat. Low polls today, perhaps, for Joe Biden, but likely high marks in the annals of history.
1: Coming up, how plastics and medical tubing can thwart chemotherapy. That's just ahead on Living on Earth. Stay tuned.
0: If you like listening to Living on Earth, please join us by telling people you know to tune in to our podcast. And if you can, please send us a donation. $5 or more makes a difference. Just go to LOE.org and click on Donate at the top of the page. Thanks.
1: It's Living on Earth. I'm Jenny Doring,
0: And I'm Steve Kerwood. Breast cancer is the leading cause of cancer death among women worldwide, and except in the most affluent nations, death rates keep rising. In the U.S., where one out of eight women will get breast cancer in their lifetime, survival rates are better thanks to screening and advanced chemotherapy and hormone treatments. But even in rich nations, there are some breast cancer cases that are stubbornly resistant to chemo and hormone therapies and thus are more likely to spread and recur. Now some government-funded researchers in Taiwan think they may know why. They say a chemical commonly used in intravenous bags and medical tubing may actually be making breast cancers worse. This chemical is a form of phthalates, known by its initials, DEHP, and like many other phthalates, DEHP is an additive used to make plastics soft and pliable. Science already knows DEHP and other phthalates are linked to a variety of disorders, from obesity to neurological development problems. And these chemicals enter our bodies in many ways, including from a number of cosmetics and fast foods. And now, with this recent finding, the healthcare system itself is implicated in the breast cancer epidemic. With evidence, the plastic additive DEHP leached from IV bags and medical tubing can help breast cancer cells evade chemotherapy treatments. Joining us now is Pete Myers. Founder and chief scientist of Environmental Health Sciences, a partner of EHN.org and DailyClimate.org. He joins me now. Welcome back to Living on Earth, Pete.
5: It's great to be back, Steve. Nice to see you.
0: So, what did these researchers in Taiwan find out about DEHP and breast cancer?
5: Well, their previous research, which was really interesting and suggestive, indicated that DEHP affects drug resistance. It reduces the effectiveness of certain drugs that are used to treat breast cancer. And what they did with this paper is they tried to figure out why that happened. This paper first confirmed their original findings. Patients with higher levels of DEHP don't respond as well to breast cancer treatment drugs, tamoxifen and doxirubicin. Women who have had breast cancer in the past are more likely to have it again when they have higher levels of DEHP. But also they found that women with higher levels are more likely to die. They have later stage tumors. The tumor sizes are larger. And this was all from the epidemiology, which was the first part of this study. They then did a series of cell and animal tests to figure out what are the mechanisms that are causing that.
0: And the answer is?
5: Well, it's it's actually kind of clear they used a classic breast tumor cell line series, and they showed that DEHP inhibits two drugs specifically, as I mentioned, tamoxifen and doxorubicin. And not only did they find that in the human breast tumor cell lines, they found it that the same thing happens in the zebrafish model and in a mouse model. What is causing this is that the DEHP turns on genes that produce enzymes that increase the degradation rate of the cancer-treating chemicals. What this means is every time a person is being treated for breast cancer and they're being infused with chemicals through IV tubes, what leaches out of the IV tubes is damaging the treatment program.
0: So it's as if the the EHP provides a defense for the cancer. Let me help you stay growing, Mr. Cancer or Ms. Cancer.
5: Yeah. And one of the more interesting findings in these experiments was that the EHP turns on a gene, which geneticists call TFF3, that actually speeds up the proliferation, invasion, metastasis, and drug resistance.
0: Pete, this is somewhat what's old is new again. I mean, some 30 years ago, Ana Soto at TUS noticed that experimental uh, breast cancer cells and test tubes were growing faster. She was puzzled by that till she realized, of course, it was related to the plastic.
5: It was a different plastic, but that's exactly right. And this raises the possibility that these findings that were just reported from Taiwan that do remind us of Anasoto's work and Carlos Sonichan's, this may be the tip of the iceberg. How many other pharmaceuticals are impeded by DEHP action? And how many endocrine-disrupting compounds interfere with pharmaceutical treatments? This is a really important set of questions that have barely been addressed by the medical community. And if it's true, if these results are replicated, it raises the ante on moving forward with this research. I mean, to what extent are the endocrine-disrupting chemicals posing a health emergency for us? Well, they've been around a long time. So it's, it's not like the classic emergency where something has just emerged. What this really represents, I think, is a health care opportunity. Because we can, if we begin to act on this, we can begin to decrease the, the mortality rate and the recurrence rate of breast cancer in women. And that would be a great outcome.
0: Now, one does not want to needlessly extrapolate, but how relevant do you think this research is to the whole business of cancer in humans?
5: Well, there are so many, so many variables in that question, Steve. I don't really have the complete answer to that. I can tell you this, that... Most of the professional organizations like the American Cancer Society have completely ignored the potential contribution of chemicals to causing cancer. They've got to start focusing on that because it's very clear that chemicals do contribute both to the causation and the promotion of cancer. And now we're learning that they also contribute to undermining the treatment programs that they themselves have been responsible for developing. So they can't continue to ignore this. And by the way, just how widespread
0: is DEHP in IV bags and tubing?
5: It's probably in about 80% of IV bags and tubing used in hospitals around the world. There was an effort 20 years ago to replace DEHP, but it fell short because they discovered that the replacement that was available at the time led the bags that were used to be weaker. And nurses said, I don't want to use a weaker bag. I need to have a strong bag. And the science on DEHP's contribution was still in development. Now we know how imperative it is that DEHP be replaced. And there are companies working to do that right now. But they've they've got to do this, not by pulling a replacement off the shelf and substituting it without testing it. Because that's been one of the long-term problems This field is faced. When you find out you've got to replace a chemical, you can't just pull a substitute off the shelf because in all likelihood, that chemical on the shelf has been tested using the same flawed testing procedures that led to the bad thing in the first place. We've got to go and help green chemistry, sustainable chemistry, develop real substitutes, and that's going to involve real testing. If you don't test, you don't know whether or not you have a substitute that you're going to
0: Pete, uh, what personal experience, if any, do you have dealing with hospitals and patient care that give you concern about the way DEHP
5: can be in, in the plastics that are used? Well, I should say that I, I'm getting to the age now where I have to deal with hospitals myself, and that's opened my eyes to how widespread plastics are. But in particular, I have a granddaughter who's three now, and she wound up being born prematurely, two months premature, and spent the first two months of her life in the neonatal intensive care unit. And as I would go in to see her and hold her, I would see all these plastics all over the, the NICU, the neonatal intensive care unit. And you know, I've been working with endocrine-disrupting compounds now for 30 years. So I know what it means to have an iv system an iv bag or tube laced with dehp i know the threats that it creates for her long term health so i'm looking at that i'm thinking what can i do at the same time i'm realizing without those plastics now she probably wouldn't have lived because the plastics allow doctors to do miracle things we've created a conundrum steve it's it's very troubling where we because we developed plastics in an era when the science was non existent. We didn't understand the threats that endocrine disrupting chemicals create for people's health. We let plastics and poorly designed plastics that weren't tested adequately become ubiquitous in healthcare. So now what we've got to do is we've got to systematically rethink which of those plastics are important. How can we redesign the ones that are important so that they don't cause endocrine disrupting problems? And thirdly, we have to think about having. The FDA reformed the way that it regulates endocrine disrupting compounds throughout society. It's not doing its job. So what's a person to do,
0: most likely a woman who has breast cancer and is getting treated and getting chemotherapy, in this equipment? What is she to do in light of this knowledge that these things are supposed to be helping her, but maybe they're making her cancer worse? That's a question that we can't answer
5: right now, Steve. There is no replacement that's ready to slip in. Sustainable chemistry, green chemistry takes time. And so I guess what I would do if that were me, and my wife actually had breast cancer, so I've experienced the hospital from that perspective. I didn't know this specific study at the time, but I I knew that actually I would ask the physician if he was aware or she that bisphenol A interferes with breast cancer treatment because that study came out about 10 years ago. And that would shock them. And so I would say they should ask every person that's involved in their healthcare is this an essential use of uh, polyvinyl chloride plastic if it's an essential use then how can we minimize it because those those drugs that they're getting they do increase the chances of recovery but we also know that failure of the drugs in treatment are causing a significant amount of harm as well. And now we know, we think we know, one of the reasons why that treatments sometimes fail. But there's no easy answer, Steve. It's a a problem that's been building for decades. And we haven't been willing as a society to make the investments to create the new chemicals, which we can do, because we know enough about endocrine disrupting mechanisms that we can design things that don't do it and gradually replace stuff that's in the hospitals with material that's safer. We have to get people demanding that research be supported and demanding to the hospitals that they push to have the replacements available as quickly as possible.
0: Pete Myers is the founder and chief scientist of Environmental Health Sciences. Thanks so much for spending the time with us today, Pete. Great to have you on again.
5: Excellent to see you.
1: The Arctic is thought to be warming faster than any other region on Earth, and that's creating new habitat for grizzly bears, moose, salmon, wolves, and beavers. And as nature's ecosystem engineers, beavers are bringing big changes to the Arctic landscape. Ben Goldfarb is an environmental journalist and author of the book Eager, the surprising secret life of beavers and why they matter. He says the tenacious rodents are making themselves right at home in the Arctic.
6: Yeah, so beavers are colonizing or perhaps recolonizing the Arctic at a a pretty impressive rate. The guy who studied this the closest is an ecologist named Ken Tape in Alaska. And basically what he found by looking at satellite images, because beaver complexes are actually so large and impressive, you can see them in satellite imagery, is that between 1999 and 2014, beavers built 56 new complexes of ponds in this, this area in the Arctic that Tape studied. And beavers were actually moving north by about eight kilometers, so five miles or so per year. So they're moving north at a really impressive rate. The why is basically because the climate is changing and the habitat is becoming suitable for them, right? Beavers need trees. And as the willow line advances north into the previously treeless tundra, it's creating this available food and building material for them, this resource that beavers need. A big question is whether this is really a new colonization or whether they're really recolonizing areas where they used to live before they were trapped out by fur traders. So certainly they're moving north, whether that's a novel colonization event or a recolonization is still to be determined.
1: Right, because I remember when we talked about your book, Eager, you said that there were hundreds of millions of beavers all over North America. And they're now recovering, right? What do we know right now about how many beavers there are at this point?
6: Yeah, we don't have a great beaver population estimate for North America. You know, no states or provinces really keep good track. But the best guess we have is something like 10 to 15 million beavers on this continent, which, you know, sounds like a lot, right? They're not an endangered species, certainly. But as you pointed out, you know, that's a tiny fraction of the beavers that used to live on this continent historically. You know, we know that pre-European arrival, there were as many as 400 million beavers on this continent. So this was once a, a truly prolific, ubiquitous animal.
1: So beavers are, of course, nature's engineers or ecosystem engineers. So on a physical level, how are beaver dams and ponds changing the Arctic tundra?
6: Yeah, I mean, certainly as beavers build dams, they create these giant impoundments, right? These really impressive ponds, which can be many, many times the size of your typical Olympic swimming pool. And they're turning these historically kind of single-threaded channels and making them these big complexes of ponds and wetlands. And the big concern that some people have about that is that as a result, beavers may be melting the permafrost. There is lots of methane locked up in that permafrost. So as beavers spread water out, they may be releasing a very potent greenhouse gas into the atmosphere. But, of course, beavers' contribution to climate change will always be a minuscule fraction of humans' contribution. So they're certainly not the ones to blame for this problem. And in fact, I'd also point out that you know, beavers are also fantastic sequesterers of carbon, right? That a beaver colony, a beaver pond is full of all kinds of organic carbon-rich material. And there have been fantastic studies showing that beavers are locking up lots of carbon. So while it's true that in the Arctic, they may be releasing methane elsewhere in their range, you know, they're keeping a lot of carbon out of the atmosphere.
1: Ben, I know that one of the reasons that beavers are such an attractive animal to bring back in certain places, especially in the very arid American West, is because their ponds lock up large amounts of water on the landscape and and help revegetate and add moisture to a landscape that's drying out because of climate change. What are the potential benefits that they could bring to the Arctic?
6: Yeah, you know, I've been interested in the way that some of these studies have been Covered by the media that kind of the default assumption is that because beavers are moving to the Arctic, you know, yes, they're melting some permafrost. That must be a negative interaction. I remember a few years ago, the New York Times did a story where they called beavers agents of Arctic destruction as though beavers have done more to the Arctic than we humans have. And to me, I mean, I think it's really important to remember that beavers are just these amazing keystone species, right? They're these animals that disproportionately support a lot of life wherever they are. I mean, because they create these wonderful pond and wetland complexes, they just engineer fabulous habitat for all kinds of creatures. Trout and salmon, amphibians, waterfowl, songbirds, other aquatic mammals like otters and mink and muskrat and moose you name it. You know, there's just this amazing body of literature about how important beavers are for other organisms. So I, I think that it's really important to just keep in mind that, you know, some of the changes that beavers are inducing in the Arctic may be beneficial for some species. You know, that, okay, perhaps the melting of the permafrost is negative, but beavers are also engineering habitat for animals that we know are moving north anyway, right? there sort of paving the way for some of these creatures. So instead of agents of Arctic destruction, you know, they're agents of Arctic adaptation, at least for some organisms, I think.
1: That's right. I mean, beavers are certainly not the only species shifting towards the poles as climate change happens. So how should we be thinking about which species, quote unquote, belong where in this new and evolving reality?
6: Yeah, it's a really interesting philosophical question, I think. I mean, are animals that move north because of our actions in warming the climate are those invasive species? I would argue not. They're animals that are just sort of resourcefully adapting to the conditions that we've created for them. We know that salmon, for example, you know, salmon are basically disappearing in a lot of California, their native range there, but there are also salmon showing up in new rivers in the Arctic where they haven't been seen before. And we know that beavers create fantastic salmon habitat that baby salmon love to rear, to grow up in the slow water refuges that beavers create. So I think that As I mentioned earlier, you know, I think that for salmon and some other species, beavers could be doing potentially at some point a a lot of good.
1: You know, beavers, as we know, they can cause some problems for communities when they first move in, maybe recolonize an area. They do cut down trees and they do flood areas. Can you give us an example of how communities in the American West, for example, ranchers, were able to gradually switch to a pro beaver mindset and sort of see some of the benefits of these engineers?
6: Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, certainly beavers are not the easiest animals to live with, right? There are all kinds of, of impacts to human infrastructure that beavers cause. And as a result, there's this very long history of beaver persecution, right? First, we killed them for their pelts. And then as they started to recover in the 20th century, we killed them for having the temerity to mess with our stuff. And there are lots and lots of ranchers out there who I've talked to who told me, you know, you know yeah, my my dad killed beavers and his dad killed beavers and his dad killed beavers for damming and irrigation ditches or road culverts or what have you. But as the climate gets hotter and drier and it becomes more and more important to keep water on the landscape, I think lots of farmers and ranchers are recognizing the benefits of having these animals around. Beavers are basically agents of water storage and water creation in a sense. You know, they create these wonderful watering holes and they're also irrigators, right? They spread water out, they force water into the ground. So there, you know, when you look at a beaver pond, you see all of that visible surface water, but you don't necessarily see the water table rising, the aquifers being recharged, the soil being hydrated. So there's lots of literature about beavers basically being irrigators, you know, being plant producers. And if you're a rancher, uh, you know, with your cows in a a valley with beavers in it, you know, you're going to have more forage for your cattle. You know, the beavers are just making the land lusher. So certainly a lot of ranchers have appreciated that benefit.
1: That's Ben Goldfarb, environmental journalist and author of Eager, The Surprising Secret Life of Beavers and Why They Matter. To get the stories behind the stories on Living on Earth, as well as special updates, please sign up for the Living on Earth newsletter. Every week, you'll find out about upcoming events and get a look at show highlights and exclusive content. Just navigate to the Living on Earth website, loe.org, and click on the newsletter link at the top of the page. That's loe.org. Coming up, the life and love of Wolf 21, one of Yellowstone National Park's most famous resident wolves. That's just ahead on Living on Earth. Support
6: for Living on Earth comes from Sailors for the Sea and Oceana, helping boaters race clean, sail green, and protect the seas they love, More information at sailorsforthesea.org. Support also comes from friends of Smeagol the Seagull and Smeagol's Guide to Wildlife. It's all about the wildlife right next door to you. That's Smeagol, S-M-E-A-G-U-L-L, org.
0: It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood.
1: And I'm Jenny Doring. One of the most endearing aspects of dogs as pets is they can respond to each other and us humans with what seems to be unconditional love. So we shouldn't be surprised by a love story about two wolves, given that wolves and dogs have almost identical DNA. I learned the wolf love story you're about to hear from Rick McIntyre, who logged more than 100,000 wolf sightings in Yellowstone National Park as a biological technician with the Yellowstone Wolf Project. Rick's longest continuous streak of watching the wolves, starting in June 2000, was an incredible 6,175 days. Wolves are most active at dusk and dawn, so Rick had a lot of early mornings and late nights. And cold, sometimes the temperature got as low as 33 below. Rick McIntyre is retired now, but he still gets out into the field almost every morning to watch the wolves before coming home to write about them. I spoke with him about his 2020 book, The Reign of Wolf 21, which is the heartfelt account of 21 and his mate, 42, and the druid wolf pack they led for a decade in Yellowstone National Park. When Rick McIntyre is out tracking wolves, he peers down a powerful spotting scope to see them as far as a mile away and shares the view with visitors. A
3: lot of folks visit Yellowstone. They all want to see wolves. So folks like myself, we get to help people, have an experience with that. I've shown famous people, wolves, movie stars, uh, politicians. I've shown uh, regular people. I've shown school kids.
1: And he does a lot of his wolf watching in the Lamar Valley as its wide, flat meadows attract large herds of elk, pronghorn, and bison. Several creeks feed the Lamar River, braiding its way beneath the snow-capped Absarokas. It's a big, open landscape where humans can feel like there's so much beyond us.
3: I think we understand now that we're just part of a very big world and many other species are out there, including primates and wolves, dolphins, whales, et cetera, that um, have emotions, intelligence that are uh, very, very similar to us. Anyone that watches wolves in the wild, um, there's just no way around it, that they have very strong emotional aspects of their life. They are rational thinkers. They make decisions, either good or bad.
1: And they're highly social animals who live together in packs of 5 to 10 members. And Rick says packs can briefly grow to 30 or more members before some strike out on their own, living life as a lone wolf before finding another home. And he told me he had to write a book about the alpha male that researchers called Wolf 21.
3: Well, there's so much to say about him. It's almost like if Superman was a real person, how could you describe him? Mm -hmm.
1: This hero had mostly gray fur with a cape of black along his back. He not only survived in the harsh Yellowstone climate, as the alpha male of the powerful Druid Peak pack, Wolf 21 thrived.
3: So from his biological father, who he never knew, 21 was gifted with extremely superior genetics. So he grew up into a very large, a very strong
1: wolf. Which matters a lot when it's your responsibility to bring down elk and even bison. And to protect your family from rival packs. The Yellowstone ecosystem supports about 8 to 10 packs with names like Leopold, Chief Joseph, and Molly's, which each patrol their own territory. They often overlap, and conflicts are common. In fact, wolves in Yellowstone are most likely to die from wounds inflicted by other wolves. But Wolf 21 didn't have to worry too much about that.
3: As far as we know, he never lost a fight in his life, including times where he had to fight several other males at the same time. So he was the undisputed, undefeated heavyweight champion of Yellowstone.
1: And despite the fact that wolf fights can be brutal.
3: He never killed a defeated opponent.
1: He'd beat up rival wolves, sure. Fearlessly defend his kin. He let rival packs know whose land they were on, the mighty druids. But then he'd step back and let them go.
3: He was, um, I I think many people would agree that he was probably the greatest wolf that has ever been known by human beings. So just to be able to see him every day for year after year was just a huge privilege on my part. Um, I saw him deal with all sorts of problems and crises, and he he just had this very smooth way of mainly using nonviolence when he could or minimum violence and force when necessary. Oftentimes, um, I, I would compare him to um, people that have had special dogs in their life that uh, were so loyal and devoted and had such good characters. And um, I think you know that all, all modern dogs in the world come directly from wolf ancestors. So everything that we admire in our pet dogs, their, their courage, their bravery, their loyalty, their devotion, uh, their playfulness, all that, that comes exactly from ancestors like Wolf 21.
1: Alongside the Alpha Female, he led one of the largest packs in Yellowstone history, with 37 wolves at its height. The Druid Pack drew the fervent attention of the wolf-watching public. They'd flock in the hundreds to the Lamar Valley, where they reigned. Rick would help them find the pack. And if they were lucky and patient, these adoring Yellowstone visitors would get to see the alphas leading a hunt or chowing down on a carcass or playing with their pups.
3: You would see this gigantic male wolf start a wrestling match with a little tiny pup, let's say maybe a month or two old. And it it seemed like 21 would wait for the pup to grab one of 21's leg or maybe a piece of fur on uh, his belly or something like that. And with the most gentle tug that probably the the pub was making, 21 would flop over on his back pretending that the, the little pup had just defeated him in battle. It was just another aspect of his personality that was so fascinating to watch.
1: The alpha male, Wolf 21, was beloved by the public, and it's no surprise he's the focus of Rick's book. But Rick says the alpha female plays just as important of a role, if not more so, in leading the pack. And at one point in the Druid Peak pack, the alpha female, known as Wolf 40, had a leadership style that, well, let's just say it was very different from Wolf 21's peaceful demeanor. Competition within packs is normal. After all, the alphas have the best chance of passing on their genes And there can only be one alpha male and one alpha female. And sometimes she'll do anything to gain power.
3: We don't know exactly what Forty's problem was, but she had a very violent and aggressive personality. She drove her own mother out of the pack and then one of her two sisters so that she was now the alpha female
1: For years, she relentlessly bullied and abused her remaining sister, who didn't seem to be able to fight back. She'd bite and beat up Cinderella, which is what the Wolf Project researchers nicknamed the underdog. There were signs that the old alpha even killed her sister's pups two years in a row, in 1998 and 99. A wolf pack can only feed so many hungry mouths, so this kind of behavior isn't unusual, though it sounds cruel. And the big, powerful Wolf 21?
3: Male wolves in the wild seem to have a compunction against doing anything that will harm a female.
1: He could only stand helplessly aside as the aggressive female attacked their pack. Then in 2000, something happened that changed his destiny and the fate of the Druid peak pack. The wolves ended up having four litters that spring. That meant a lot of hungry mouths to feed. And Cinderella had her pups in a den a few miles away from her abusive sister. One night in May, the alpha female, Wolf 40, decided she didn't want to put up with competition from her sister 42's young pups.
3: As far as we can tell, for the first time in her life, 42 actually stood up to her sister. She had to to protect her pups. And in a fight with her sister, 42 could not win. She just did not have the killer instinct.
1: But some younger females in the pack had been bullied too, and they came to her aid.
3: So when I came out early the next morning, I found Wolf 40 lying next to the road, just drenched in blood, covered with wolf bites. And um, she died of blood loss just a short time after that. So all those years of abuse that 42 had suffered from her sister, it culminated that night.
1: And Cinderella became the new alpha female of the Druid Peak pack. Now she and Wolf 21 reigned over the Grand Lamar Valley. They had a strong pair bond and seemed meant for each other, Rick says.
3: It really was a special thing. They spent... At least two-thirds of their life together, they were devoted to each other.
1: It was a bond that knit them tighter together with time.
3: They were both born with jet black fur, and um, as sometimes happens with uh, married couples that are together for decades and decades, as they grew old, they, they looked even more and more like each other, so they started to turn gray About the the same uh, pattern.
1: Every morning, Rick rose at 3.30 or so to get out into the field and watch their lives unfold. To see what he could learn from the behavior of the alpha male and the many letters he raised with 42.
3: He was so dedicated to his family, to his friends. He would do anything for them, certainly risk his life constantly for them
1: even provide emotional support.
3: Especially with the younger wolves in his family, uh, there was a time where he noticed that one of his young sons was being bullied by the other yearlings, and 21 went out of his way to go to that one particular yearling and give him special attention in front of the other young males.
1: And if you're a young wolf in a pack and the alpha male comes over to you,
3: and gives you special attention, like he approves of you, that's a pretty big deal.
1: Rick says this kindness and empathy made Wolf 21 stand out.
3: He certainly was an ideal role model for me and for everyone else that knew him. If all of us could be more like 21 or like 42, the world would be a lot better place. So this one particular day in um, late January, I saw the two of them come together. It was just the start of the mating season, and they were very affectionate with each other. And from a distance of about a mile or two away, I saw them have a mating. It was very touching because they, they laid down as they were still mating. And he put one of his uh, paws around her shoulder in in a very affectionate way.
1: The next morning, Rick got up as usual, hours before sunrise, and soon spotted the family. He could see the patriarch. But where was his mate? He couldn't get a signal from her radio caller. Cinderella was missing. Rick and his colleagues started searching for her.
3: We found out what happened to her that night.
1: The Wolf Project tracking plane circled over where it looked like there had been a big fight. The alpha female lay still in the snow, the latest victim of a wolf battle with the rival Molly's pack.
3: A 21 did not know. He spent the next two months going in a search pattern throughout his territory. As far as I could tell, acting like he was trying to find her. And he never did. And I could see that he was rapidly experiencing um, a physical decline. He was turning gray at a much faster rate than he had just a short time before that. He seemed to be listless. He just wasn't the same as he had been prior to that time."
1: Before long, four months had passed since she had gone missing. It was June now, nearly the longest day of the year. Rick was up early as usual, watching the pack.
3: And some of the younger adults in the family had a few elk come into their meadow.
1: The young druids eagerly gave chase, but...
3: I looked over 21, and he just was lying there. He, he just had no energy left to join in that hunt. And that was the moment that I realized that this was really about it for 21, that this was so unlike him. And that was the last time I saw him.
1: A month passed with no sign of what had happened to the old alpha male. Then, in mid-July, a grim discovery. An outfitter found wolf remains with a radio collar that had long since stopped working. Rick and a pack of other Wolf Project and Park employees rode on horseback up to the meadow where he had been found. It had been a special rendezvous site for the Druid Alphas, a place to meet up.
3: He decided to go one last place, way up in the mountains. One last place where there might be a chance of finding 42.
1: She wasn't there, but a tree they'd marked together many times might have held a trace of her scent. He'd curled up and gone to sleep one last time in the shade of that tree, maybe dreaming of his long-lost love. Rick McIntyre's 2020 book is called The Reign of Wolf 21.
0: By the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Baskell, Loma Beltran, Chloe Chen, Iris Chen, Josh Kroon, Delaney Dreyfus, Mark Couch, Mark Seth Lender, Don Lyman, Louis Mallison, Ainsley O'Neill, Sophia Pandelitis, Jake Rigo, Hannah Richter, and
1: Yolanda Omari. Tom Tiger engineered our show. Allison Leerstein composed our themes. Special thanks this week to Destination Wildlife. You can hear us anytime at LOE.org, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. And like us, please, on our Facebook page, Living on Earth. We tweet from at Living on Earth and find us on Instagram at Living on Earth Radio. I'm Jenny Doring,
0: And I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening.